This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scott. Don't worry, the PM is not going to sack you after a week. Sacked after 12 months, looks like you're fucked up. Sacked after a week, looks like he's fucked up. And I'm not doing terribly, am I? I love the way that they've sandblasted everything on there. It's so clean. Hello listeners and welcome to this week's episode of Enemy Within. My name's Pete Romand and I am joined as always by my co-host James Foley. How are you doing James? I'm doing good Pete. I'm doing good. Today we're going to get right into it. Before we started recording we heard that Quasi Quarting was forced out as Chancellor and Truss's government is in further crisis. James, what do you make of this? Essentially what's going on here is that the markets have rebelled, conservatives themselves have rebelled, and essentially the wacky plans of Quarteng and Trusts have had to be abandoned. And I don't think this is an end to it, to be honest. I don't see any way in which they can stabilise themselves against the combined efforts of these forces internally within the major party of capitalism historically within the United Kingdom. It seems to me that the disturbances that we've seen over the last couple of weeks are only just the beginning. And I don't think, frankly, that sacking Quarteng will make much of a difference. Seems to me it's quite possible that Truss herself will be gone within the next couple of weeks. It does seem like that. Uh, the Daily Star has a running live feed on YouTube with a picture of Truss and a lettuce asking which will be gone first, Truss or a Tesco's lettuce? Apparently, they have contacted the bookies and the bookies put it at six to one on Truss. In my threads, we have some baked beans that have been there for two weeks sitting in some tinfoil. I wouldn't be surprised if they're in the fridge longer than Liz Truss survives as Tory leader. So, James, Jeremy Hunt has been announced as the new Chancellor. Hunt was a prominent backer of Rishi Sunak, and Sunak was, of course, arguing in the Tory leadership contest for a strategy of sound money, of economic responsibility. Do you think this signals a complete U-turn in Truss's economic strategy? How much of a difference is this going to make? And does this have any chance of uniting the Conservative Party now that she's reaching out to another wing of it? Yeah, I mean, he was prominently associated with the economic arguments made by Sunak. This was essentially the point of differentiation between the two candidates. Remembering that Liz Truss actually won on this basis relatively conclusively in what was essentially an argument between Thatcherite austerity and some just barmy Thatcherism, quite frankly, that was represented by Truss. They've rolled back on some of the proposals. It seems likely that they will continue to do so. The real question is, will any of this actually make any damn bit of difference? Can you stabilise Trussism without any of the policies on which they were essentially elected to govern? And what would be the purpose of it, quite frankly? The best that she can probably hope for is to somehow unite the party in some unstable equilibrium and limp on to the next election, where probably they will be hoping that they get beat by Labour, but not too conclusively. Hoping because they've made such a mess of the economy that they don't really want to be governing it anymore anyway, but also they don't want to lose so badly that they would have no chance of ever recovering. 
And that isn't completely out with the bounds of possibilities. I mean, there are polls today showing them under 20%, which is completely unprecedented and something that, if that were to be replicated in a general election, which seems slightly unlikely to me, but as it were, you just think, how would they possibly ever recover? This would be a complete wipeout. This would be a Lib Dem after the coalition government style wipeout. It, it would be, and the whole two-party equilibrium of British political tradition would somehow be broken. The, the broader story here is the longer-running breakdown of what passes for the two-party system within the United Kingdom that has been going on for some time. Often you were seeing the symptoms of that in the shifting Labour base, the inability of the Labour Party to really define what it stands for, all becoming symptoms of that breakdown within the party system. Conversely, it seems that the most radical effects are now being felt by the Conservatives, and it's difficult to see how Liz Truss can be the person that gets them out of this mire. Not that I think that there is another obvious answer either, because the problem the Conservative has is essentially they eviscerated their cadre structure and leadership structure through the Brexit process and rebuilt the party around the personality of Johnson. This is a phenomenon that we are seeing across Europe and across the global north. The delegitimization of parliamentary politics, of capitalist democracy in general. But in most European countries, there's something of an outlet because when leading parties go through crisis, in systems which contain an element of proportional representation, new parties can emerge. New parties can be formed, and these can be of the right, of the left, or in the case of France, we see, for example, a new centrist party which has gained a degree of hegemony within French politics. I suppose the point is, though, that there is an outlet for anger. And also there are opportunities for the party political system to change substantially enough that they can avert immediate crises. Even in the US, where you also have a first-past-the-post system, the parties are open enough that you can have emergent challenges within them. So, for example, within the Democratic Party, you have the space for opposition from people like Sanders and so on to compete and seek a mandate at a national level. And also, of course, Trumpism and the right of the Republican Party or the socially conservative wing of the Republican Party. British politics seems uniquely brittle and unable to respond right now. The last time we saw an attempt at a new party in the UK was Change UK, which was an absolute disaster. What can you see happening here? In some ways, I think it is in some ways similar to the situation in America. Indeed, I would venture to say that part of the problem here is the success with which oppositional forces, given the lack of outlets for other party politics in the UK system, ended up taking over the two parties. Corbynism, of course, was able to surge through the Labour Party, given the complete intellectual vacuum represented by the centrists at the time, and at some stage looked completely unassailable. What eventually happened via the People's Vote campaign and other forces was the complete delegitimization of Corbynism, and subsequently the use of all sorts of undemocratic measures and so on that have completely eviscerated the internal structures of Labourism in order to hand back control to the so-called sensible moderates represented by 
Keir Starmer and others. So Labour Party in some ways had returned to what it was as a Blairite type of party, but in the process has even less legitimacy to say that it is in any way a democratic or open expression of what passes for the left and the centre-left in British politics. Conversely, I think what's happened to the Conservatives is they had to adapt to the Brexit moment. At that stage, they lost much of their governing class and cadre from the party, pushing them out to the margins, the Camerons, the Osbournes, the Ken Clarks, and numerous other people that were the leading Conservative figures of the period. And thus, the people who are leading the Conservative Party nowadays are in a sense the third or fourth string lineup of what might have been a cabinet a few years ago. So the quality of them has decreased. The capacity for the party to push out ideologically eccentric elements such as these sort of neo-Thatcherites that wrote Britannia Unchained and so on has been weakened accordingly and they're just more open to the winds of random ideological moments. While I agree with you that these winds of change are passing through various other aspects of Europe, because we have to keep this two-party system in Westminster, you do get all sorts of weird distortions happening through the two main parties. Now moving on to Labour, let's consider that for a second, because Labour are now in an interesting position. Of course, they want to press home their advantage against Truss, but what we see in the rhetoric they're putting out is that they don't want to put it all on Truss, because for them, the best situation that they can have is that Truss manages to hold on to power and is able to take the Conservatives into the next general election. As a result, the Labour Party seems to be changing tack from attacking Truss in particular to not even spreading the blame around to other members of the cabinet. Usually we see attacks on individual politicians as being incompetent. What we've seen over the last few days is a move towards attacking trickle-down economics. I think this is interesting. I don't think it's any more than a soundbite, but during the neoliberal era, soundbites attacking the old social democratic consensus worked. I actually think that it's potentially useful for us in the long term in an overall battle of ideas that trickle-down economics in particular is being attacked. And while they're not naming neoliberal capitalism as the problem, it's about as close as you're going to get from a mainstream party. This is what their tack is right now, when trust is particularly unpopular, particularly unstable. And they don't actually want to unseat her, they just want to damage her, but keep her in power in number 10 until the next general election. What do you think about that? If your ultimate political intention is just to say things are so terrible under the Conservatives that we need a more moderate and stable mode of governance and administration, then Keir Starmer will do that and it will be a sort of partial retreat from the trickle-down mad theories that have been promoted by the likes of Truss and Quarteng. To me, though, the situation is far more severe than just saying that we need a retreat from some of the neoliberal nostrums that might have dominated in think tanks and the blue skies thinking, free market philosophising that you would have seen amongst a certain brand of libertarians in the 90s. The problems are structural and endemic to this particular phase of capitalism that we are living through. And that can sound like I'm just talking some Marxist shite, but it is actually frankly true. And it is difficult to see how you address the big problems of rising energy prices, inflation and so on without more radical uh, rethinking 
of the relationship between capitalism and democracy. I think it's fair enough to say that there are problems with trickle-down economics, etc. But to me, the more fundamental thing that neoliberalism involved, once you get away from the initial Thatcher-Reagan bluster, was the takeover of democratic politics and the possibility of public control over any aspect of our economic lives by undemocratic forces. And actually, the great irony of this last couple of weeks is that for all that enough is enough and all these other forces might say quarting's gone because we did some stalls and had some rallies, right? The reality here is that markets revolted and the conservatives had to concede to the authority of the markets. In fact, what you have seen is a revolt by the Bank of England, the IMF, right? The Financial Times, The Economist, and basically every single institution that dominated our political economy under the conditions of neoliberalism. Simply getting rid of some of the crazier libertarian nostrums of the last couple of weeks is, frankly, in some ways, it could even be counterproductive insofar as we just say it's okay for the markets to exert governance and ultimately to exert their controls over democratic politics. I don't think that we can expect Starmer to produce any radical economic reforms whatsoever. I do think that it allows an extra frame with which we can hold Starmer accountable when he is in power. So when he's in power, we can quote him on the fact that he said trickle-down economics doesn't work, it's the problem, and then why is it that the policies he is largely arguing for are still fundamentally reproducing it? I think it will be useful in that regard. Now, don't get me wrong. Keir Starmer has promised lots of things in the past and has had zero problem in reneging on all those promises. But when it is the case that a centrist party, a liberal capitalist party, at least rhetorically rejects some neoliberal nostrums, I think that is useful for forces to the left of that. And the other thing is that while you can say that this isn't a victory for the left, it's not down to the left's campaigning, as you say, it was a revolt of the markets, it was the revolt of capitalist institutions, nevertheless, to me, it's still heartening to see enough is enough rallies. Because I think that if we want to restructure capitalism, if we want to reform capitalist institutions in a radical manner, we do need to build working class power from below. And working class power is still incredibly weak. Campaigns like Enough is Enough are attempts to start the process of rebuilding that, and we should welcome that. I, I'm not sure I... Well, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm kind of past the point of just abstractly welcoming good things, right? I mean, I think we do actually need to move towards a more concerted strategy that is independent of Labourism. So you don't think there's any place for a Gramscian battle of ideas in socialist strategy right now? I think Gramscianism has fundamentally, in some ways, destroyed the minds of many persons on the left over the last period, which doesn't mean to say that Gramsci himself doesn't have a great deal to offer. But if you look at the trajectory of left-wing ideas in the United Kingdom since the early 1980s, what you've seen is that Gramscianism has become the passport of people from the far left into the dominant ranks of the Labour Party, starting with Marxism today, which became the alibi for the passage towards new Labour, and continuing up to this day from many former Corbynistas who find that they have no real uh, solution to politics other than to cheerlead Starmer from the left and hope that perhaps 
you can go for a sort of Andy Barnum style of government, forgetting perhaps that Andy Barnum was mildly pro-austerity and very much pro-Iraq war. Where I disagree is, I think it's a bit unfair to conflate Gramscianism with people cheerleading for Starmer. Yes, there are sections sections of the sort of burnt-out Labour Party left who don't see any avenue other than to just get behind Starmer because he is promising a tiny little green investment bank or whatever. Sure, that's not a cohesive strategy that's going to get us anywhere. I don't think you can complete that with a decent Gramscian approach. I think that, you know, you could construct a far better Gramscian approach. You could construct a better Gramscian approach. Perhaps we should construct a better Gramscian approach. The reality is, though, that for many, many decades, it has become the alibi of those parts of the left in Britain who are becoming closer and closer to the institutionalised framework of labourism and in that respect has been nothing but pernicious, I think, for the process of rebuilding the forces of the left ideologically. And even when we accidentally did take over the structures of the Labour Party, I say we, I never join. I'm too much of a, you know, braveheart-addled, kilt-wearing Scottish nationalist to really have done so. But nonetheless... That's my Gramscianism, by the way, is like waving the saltire and wearing tartan <laughs> knickers, you know. Not that I wear knickers, I wear boxer shorts, right? Um, just to be clear, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, like, even when they did, the truth was that the Corbynist project collapsed under the weight of not having an intellectual backbone for what it stood for. And I'm not saying that just means that you need to shout for revolution remotely. In some ways, it was the inability of the Corbynistas to actually go for the sensible moderate route on the European Union when the left needed to have a backbone on that that frankly derailed that project and ended up handing power to Boris Johnson. Well, from James's laundry preferences, tartan or otherwise, on to Scotland. It was SNP conference this week and we'll be talking about that right after the break. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascot. Welcome back, listeners. It was SMP conference this week, taking place in a large old hangar outside of Aberdeen. Reports suggest that it wasn't the most inspiring event that we've seen. It's lost a lot of the impetus that SMP conferences have had after the 2014 referendum. Certainly less hustle and bustle and grassroots activity. But the thing that seems to have dominated the news agenda this week is Detestgate. Nicola Sturgeon said that she detested the Tories, and apparently that is the most important thing that has happened. James, what are your thoughts? It's another stupid example of the stupid tendency of Scottish politics to engage in polarisations that frankly just help the SNP rather than anything else, right? Because... Yeah, I mean, look, if you're being absolutely honest and you ask me, do I personally hate every single individual Tory and person who votes the Tories? 
No, they are symptomatic of the deeper structures of the problems of capitalism. They are formally speaking the enemy, but you don't have to hate them as people, right? That's all fine with me. But ultimately, like when people see what the conservatives are doing, and that's tinged through the lens of a certain naive Scottish nationalism, I completely understand why it is that people will just flock to the idea that they too detest the Tories. So yes, everyone gets their knickers in a twist. I've used the term knickers now twice on this podcast. <laughs> everyone gets their knickers in a twist about the fact that we have a politician using the term to test about a political opponent and isn't this terrible, etc., etc. I think, if I'm being absolutely honest about it, Nicola Sturgeon will love it. Right? And the SNP hacks will love it. It's their opportunity to shore up a polarised side, to highlight the moral differentials with the free market lunacies that are going on and how Scotland, we do things a wee bit differently up here, don't we? It's a wee bit different up here, isn't it great? The truth is, many of the same endemic problems are the same up here. They're not doing very much with the powers that they do have. There's no real progress towards independence. And in fact, insofar as they have a platform for independence, it's based on some of the same libertarian economics designed by Andrew Wilson and his pals. But forget all of that, because she said she hated the the Tories, and we're going to have to make a big deal of that. The full outrage from the Conservatives over this issue was pretty ridiculous. Obviously, Truss, in the leadership contest, described Sturgeon as an attention seeker who should be ignored. So for them to get their knickers in a twist, to uh, borrow the phrase of the day of this podcast, uh, is pretty ridiculous. She is an attention seeker, but the problem is that she is being ignored too much. The fundamental dividing line right now in politics is around anti-Toryism. And for the SNP, they're probably not too happy that Labour are managing to suck up all the anti-Tory energy because the debate is primarily taking place on a UK-wide level. So for Sturgeon to be attacked for this is incredibly useful for her. It repositions the debate around Sturgeon and the SNP as the chief opponents of conservatism in Scotland, which is only going to actually help them. So they've actually managed to reframe the debate. So yeah, I agree. It's an interesting point. I mean, what Connor's strapline is against the Scottish establishment, right? Is that the SNP and the Greens who actually govern Holyrood? Or is it the unionists uh, who have been the traditional power brokers in Scottish politics and obviously dominate through Westminster, etc, etc. If you want to understand the dominant ideology of Scotland, you have to understand that the two are intertwined and reproduce one another. So when there is a big kerfuffle and full outrage about what Sturgeon says about detesting the Tories, what that does is strengthen both the Scottish Conservatives and the Holyrood governing class surrounding Nicola Sturgeon simultaneously and weakens all oppositional elements of any seriousness within Scottish society. If Sturgeon was really serious about taking on conservative-style politics, perhaps the leadership of the SNP wouldn't have excluded the motion of the SNP trade union group which put forward a motion to conference which argued that the SNP government needed to use the existing powers of the devolved government to seriously challenge the cost of living crisis and to help the poorest in society. That motion was excluded from the conference agenda. I think that if the SNP leadership were actually serious about combating conservatism, rather than just purely doing it rhetorically, that is exactly the sort of key debate that they would be having. 
Another motion that was excluded from the conference agenda this week was a motion on an independent currency. Jonathan mm. Shaffey, in his weekly newsletter, Independence Captured, for anyone who doesn't know, Jonathan is a member of the Contra editorial board, and he also writes a weekly Substack newsletter, which I'd thoroughly recommend that you subscribe to. He reported this week that there was a motion on currency arguing that because clearly the economic situation had changed since the Growth Commission published its report, that a change in policy needed to be adopted, which moves towards an independent Scottish currency after independence at a much faster rate than was previously promised. This was backed by at least 12 SNP branches, and this was also excluded from the conference agenda. It's also worth saying that on this very question, it seems a little bit strange that Nicola Sturgeon announced that the economic white paper on independence would be published a week after the SNP conference, meaning there could be no debate about the economic white paper on what an independent Scotland's economic strategy would be. It removed the possibility of debating that from the conference floor. To me, this once again just seems like managerialism and centralisation on behalf of the SNP leadership in a manner that excludes the SNP membership from having any real say whatsoever about how the party's run and what its strategy and tactics should be. I mean, look, one of two things is going to happen, right? Either independence is off the agenda, which is pretty much what I think actually is the case. I could be wrong about it, and I'll come back to that, but let's say that it is going to be off the agenda for the foreseeable future. In that case, we have an emergent cost-of-living crisis, and without getting too sanctimonious about it, what we're going to see is potentially people freezing to death, people committing suicide over unpaid bills, and all the things that we saw under conservative austerity policies after 2010. And there's a very serious social crisis that will come on top of this economic crisis. And thus, as the trade union group argued, we need to talk about how we use the existing powers of the Scottish Parliament and the system that we actually do have. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is... Well, maybe we could be independent. Maybe we are, in fact, as the SNP hinted, 12 months away from a referendum on independence. In that case, there is a serious case for debating what it is independence is actually going to look like, given that so many elements of the existing prospectus for independence don't really seem to add up, such as trying to use the currency of a third country that is not a member state of the European Union while being also simultaneously in the European single market. So there are real things that need to be debated about how you could actually make independence work under the constraints of the system in the current phase. But neither of those debates are allowed to take place. And what is actually happening is that the fake prospect that we will soon be on the road towards independence is simultaneously keeping both of those debates off the conference floor and away from SNP members. And of course, if they were allowed to come to debates, even though so many oppositional elements have left and followed Alex Salmond onto the Alba or Alapapari, depending on how you want to say it, even though that has happened, they would probably lose some of the big debates about economics if they came down to a vote. So they're keeping them off the agenda by playing this game of brinksmanship about prospective independence that I think very few people consider is remotely realistic. And obviously it's convenient for them that it turns out that this economic paper is going to be ready a week or two after the conference. 
Right. How convenient. I mean, uh, I just, what, what are the chances of that? Like, uh, <laughs> I think it was a bad conference, saved by the fact that Sturgeon is a decent orator and gave a good speech at the end, right? But, you know, I think a disingenuous uh, speech, quite frankly. But what happens, of course, is that the reporting on the flatness of that conference, which wasn't just from people like Jonathan and others on the left, it was also from various journalists in various Scottish newspapers reporting that it was the flattest conference it seen from the SNP in some time. All that gets blown out of the water in the usual way because the Conservatives and the British state do something insane as they just is now the routine. Considering that this was the party conference of a party which has proposed a referendum that is supposed to take place in less than 12 months, it's quite staggering that at that conference there were no leaflets for Yes campaigners, there were no banners there has been no infrastructure set up for any sort of yes campaign. There was no buzz about independence and the supposed independence referendum is going to take place in less than 12 months wasn't even really mentioned until Sturgeon's speech towards the end of the conference. It's quite clear that they are in no way prepared to campaign in a referendum. I remember back in 2012 when we were gearing up for the 2014 referendum. And we were very critical of the Yes campaign at the time and of the SNP for the slowness with which they were building up the Yes movement. But quite frankly, it was at lightning speed compared to this. But I remember back then, it took them more than a year to get offices for the Yes campaign established in Glasgow, to get the staff in place who are going to run the campaign, to appoint a director who's going to run the campaign who's independent of the SNP. It took them a year to do that, to even get the basics of a campaign set up. They haven't even started that process now, so it's quite clear that if it was the case that the Supreme Court were to actually rule in favour of the Scottish Government and allow a referendum, they're in no place to fight a campaign, and I think they'd be pretty upset about it at this point. No, and I think that unless they're doing it in some brilliant amount of secrecy, in which case bad for democracy, but fair play for them for managing to keep that whole thing secret, because that must be like the way the Americans kept uh, their moon landing conspiracy secret from everyone for all those years, etc. In terms of how well they have been able to... Uh, <laughs> That's uh, a joke, I don't believe the moon landings were a conspiracy, uh, just to be clear, right? But it would take that level of secrecy for them to be able to keep all this behind the scenes. But clearly they don't have money, they don't have infrastructure around any of this, and they don't have a broad campaigning front, they don't have an argument, quite frankly, for independence, and they don't have a platform for it. And up to assemble all that in the space of a couple of months would be truly miraculous. Nobody, I think, really expects that any of that will happen, but obviously they're going to be in a bit of a difficult position if by some accident they do end up winning in the Supreme Court, which is not completely impossible. And if it is, God knows what they actually do because they'd be in a very difficult situation. The bigger thing, though, that's happening here, because very often it was the way this has been framed is thank God that the the independence movement, etc., has this brilliant communicator in Sturgeon that's able to perform all these functions, etc. What people forget is that without the independence dynamic and the independence movement of 2014, Nicola Sturgeon's platform doesn't make any sense and doesn't have its populist edge that separates it out from other centrist governments. And I think you're going to see, start to see some of those contradictions unravelling because so much of this has been dependent on anti-Toryism. 
If Keir Starmer comes into power, while I think Sturgeon's mildly to the left of Starmer and mildly to the left of the Andy Burnhams of the world and so on, but essentially, why is the Scottish public going to take the risk on a breach in the same way that they would under the Brexiteer Conservatives, etc., right? An independent starts to become the last stake they've really got in the election that's going to be dominated by essentially the Tories getting turfed out by Labour next time. Without the independence dynamic, why on earth would you vote for the SNP rather than Labour? I would, because I hate Labourism, as I've already outlined, right? <laughs> Except I also don't like the SNP either, so I wouldn't vote for them. But, you know, your ordinary punter on the street that's just sick of the Tories, sick of the uncertainty, and is not tremendously ideological. What's the incentive? The last thing that they have got, their last throw of the dice, is to play up that Westminster has restrained our ambitions around independence and sovereignty and so on. And this is the thing. The economic policies of the SNP are basically indivisible from those of Keir Starmer's Labour. So why vote for Sturgeon when the UK, a UK Labour government actually has some economic powers in a way that the Scottish government doesn't? Just quickly on the independence campaign and the prospects for a new Yes Movement 2.0. Mike Russell, the SNP's president and the party's independence campaign coordinator, did address this in his speech. And this is what he said. Don't ask when the campaign is starting. We are the campaign. And across Scotland, we are well underway. We don't need to ask for permission to campaign. That was given years ago when you joined the party. Every member of the party is always permitted to campaign for our nation's freedom. So apparently the campaign is well underway. Of course, they haven't produced any materials to be given out. And it's actually quite hard to do campaigning without any resources to do it. You actually need the basics of leaflets and all the rest of it, just yeah. as a bare minimum. Remember 2014, right? Remember the posters in every damn window in some areas of Glasgow, right? With the Yes campaign, or so it seemed, right? I can't remember the last time I saw someone with a yes poster in a window in any part of Glasgow. Mike Russell was also asked about the de facto referendum, which you mentioned earlier, James, and his response I thought was pretty funny. He said he, on a de facto referendum, he didn't want to get bogged down in the details of what it meant, as in the very basic details of any part of it. How convenient. Honestly, the idea seems to have been dropped by the party completely. Yeah, I don't think it'll be dropped completely. I think they will revive elements of it. But essentially, what it'll become is another request for a mandate. The same thing they've been doing for the last six years. You know, I mean, it's this stuff isn't rocket science. They always do the same thing. And, you know, if you're not cynical by now, I'd be frankly worried for your cognitive faculties because you just need to be able to recognise patterns. Well, cynicism is something you'll get a lot of on this pod, listeners, as you are no doubt aware. So... Why don't we leave it there for this week? Yeah, we can leave it there. Just before we go, though, just before we go, I know that there was a protest event that took place earlier today that uh, gave you some feelings. Would you like to tell everyone about what happened? Well, essentially, as far as I can see, I'm going to sound like such a grumpy old bastard here, right? But what appears to have happened is the two um, people who look like art students to me approached a painting by Vincent van Gogh and threw some Campbell's soup over it and then glued themselves to a wall in order, I believe, to protest oil. Maybe oil painting, sunflower oil. Yeah, it was big oil. Big oil. Uh, did big oil own the painting or something? 
there was no connection. Oh. Well, it, to me, it just seems like, you know, this is, there is an aspect of this type of politics, which clearly is unreconstructed situationism, which continues to dominate a lot of left thinking. And people don't seem to realise that this has been done for bloody decades and it always fails for the same reason. But I think the main reasoning essentially behind it is any publicity is good publicity, even if it's got nothing to do with anything. The fact that it's on the telly means that everyone's now talking about oil, right? And therefore we're having this big conversation as a society about this necessary issue, et cetera, et cetera, right? I believe what they were shouting as they did it was something along the lines of, why do you care about art when you don't care about the planet? I believe that was the sort of linkage between doing it and... I don't... Also, gluing yourself to a wall? How does that even work? It's not like they're not going to yeah. be able to get them off the wall because of a bit of super glue. I mean, also, it just looks so much like performance art to me of that sort of irritating student situation as variety that to me like it seems like it's more performance art than it is politics anyway i have not i've yet to hear from anyone and all the people i know by the way are on the left right i'm sadly i don't have many right-wing friends at all i have yet to meet and he or hear from anyone that doesn't think that this is utterly ludicrous behavior and if you have a different opinion listeners please do write in and explain why you think so i'm open to the idea that this could somehow be productive in the process of prosecuting big oil for their various crimes, etc., right? I, I think the only discussion that's taking place right now, yes, it has raised awareness, but it's just raised awareness of how young people can be irritated. And that is the main takeaway that most people seem to be um, having from this event. I'm pretty convinced if I showed it to my students, they would say that they also found it irritating. And really, I don't even think, therefore, you can blame young people and their, you know, <laughs> and there are ways for this. I, I just don't see any particular way in which this is building the good type of awareness or the good type of politics. It just seems like a self-indulgent piece of performance art to me, quite ironically. I do think that in politics, the left has to be bolder and be willing to attempt to polarise but generally, you don't want to polarise 99.9% .9 of the population against you. That's bad polarisation. And this is, frankly, just a very bad tactical move, shall we say, to put it mildly. I believe in disruptive politics, right? But I also believe in mass action, but it's disruptive politics, of which the RMT strike is a far better illustration. And this type of thing is not that type of politics. This type of thing is situationist art school politics that just turns people off the left. Well, listeners, we'll leave it there. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. And if you enjoyed any of what we talked about today, please do be a friend and tell a friend. Let people know about the podcast. If you didn't like it, then maybe just forget this ever happened. Don't need to tell anyone about that. Tell everyone you think it's shite and then we'll get people hate listening. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Hate listeners are welcome. Hate listeners are welcome. But yes, please do let people know about the pod now that it is free and there are a host of other good Contra podcasts coming your way very soon. I believe there'll be another episode of Contracast coming soon as well as podcasts on the economy, trade unionism and much else. So subscribe and stay tuned. All right, James, I'll speak to you next week. Take care, Pete. See you soon. See you in Scotland. I will see you in Scotland next week. In fact, 
This time next week, I will be on my way up Scotland from London. We will have a live episode of The Enemy Within. Ah, live episode, that sounds fun. Okay, well, I'll see you then.